For the week of January 6th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome, and Happy New Year. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media, with you from Washington, D.C. And the Energy Gang is all here after a holiday hiatus. We are well-rested, recharged, and ready to dissect the week's energy news once again. And it didn't take long for the news to start rolling in. So here to help us understand it are my two regular co-hosts. In Washington is Catherine Hamilton, a partner at the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I'm really excited to start 2014. You bet. How did 2013 end up? It was great. I couldn't stay in my Snuggie the entire time because of the four kids thing, but we still, I still had a lot of relaxation. <laughs> Excellent. And in New York, perhaps in a Snuggie, we're not sure. It's clean energy investor and energy futurist Jigger Shaw. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Hey, how are you? I, I refuse to wear a Snuggie, so it's... Uh... <laughs> It, it, it is not something you will see me in, but I did spend a lot of time in the snow here in New York. So, All right. So last night, Twitter was a flutter with reaction to a 60 Minutes piece on cleantech investment. The story somewhat sensationalistically declared that cleantech is dead, or at least on life support. We, of course, have our opinions on that claim. In our first segment, we're going to look at the quality of that 60 Minutes reporting, parse the reactions within the cleantech sector, and fill in some crucial gaps left by the story. Then we'll take a look at the latest analysis from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The EIA's outlook for renewables is once again very conservative through 2040, and we'll ask whether its projections are tethered to reality. Boy, are we in a critical mood today. <laughs> and finally, in our third segment, we'll look at Ford's new solar concept car. It's a plug-in hybrid that uses off-grid solar for charging, and we'll ask whether it will be commercially viable or go the way of most concept cars into the junkyard of history. And then in our final segment, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, on to the first topic. Last night, 60 Minutes aired a segment targeting clean tech. It's called clean tech, and the new technologies that were developed in the energy sector were supposed to create jobs and help America break its reliance on fossil fuels. The government supported it, and billions of tax dollars were spent. So how is the investment going? Solyndra went through over half a billion dollars before it failed. Then I'm going to give you a list of other failures. Mm -hmm. Abound Energy, mm -hmm. Beacon Power, mm -hmm. Fisker, mm -hmm. VPG. Mm -hmm. yep. I'm exhausted. As I told you at the beginning, the energy business is tough. The piece focused on the influence of venture capitalists on the clean tech sector, documenting their role in politics and their learning curve in the energy market. And the story eventually concluded that clean tech is on life support. So it's not often that I can watch a 60 Minutes show in real time and declare what they got right and wrong on a subject. And last night turned out to be my chance. So while the piece ran, the television was on the receiving end of my color commentary, but it's not fun just talking to the TV, so we have a podcast for that. Let's break down the reporting. Of course, some in the clean tech community are calling the story a hit job. Uh, Jigger, what do you think? Would you go that far? What did you think of the story last night as you watched it? Well, you know, I, I do think it's ridiculously interesting as to why they even ran the story. I'm not sure what new insights they really offered to folks. There wasn't anything investigative. Everything was recycled old content. I think that the story really revolved around Vinod Kosla, 
who I thought did a great job of actually defending himself. And then there was this really weird appearance by Steve Coonan where he basically threw DOE under the bus. So I hope he doesn't think he's going to get a job again in the administration. <laughs> well, perhaps there was some pushback. A lot of people have questioned the timing of the story because there was no real news hook at this point. And again, not a lot of new investigative reporting. Uh, they did that Bloom Energy story. Leslie Stahl did that story a few years ago, and it was this puff piece on Bloom Energy, which they didn't even really focus on in this story. Do you think that there was some blowback because of that, and they decided that they needed to come around on the other side and do something supposedly more hard-hitting? Well, I mean, maybe, but the thing that is interesting is they really did focus on biofuels and batteries, both areas where there's been a lot of struggle to see the return on investment of the money that's been been allocated to date. Um, I think the potential of both areas is still pretty high, but the commercial success you know, has arguably been fairly low um, as opposed to renewable electricity, which they didn't touch on at all in the piece. And so I'm just trying to understand they'd never actually completed the story. I think if they had said that look, biofuels has been something we've been working on since the 1970s and has never really gotten to somewhere. And they actually added the ethanol piece in, et cetera. Then it could have been a coherent story, but I just don't think it was coherent. Yeah, I agree. They didn't provide any context at all. First of all, they didn't they didn't define clean tech. So there wasn't kind of like, here are all the things we're going to talk about that are part of clean tech. So you didn't really know what that universe was. And they certainly within that universe didn't talk about the total projects funded by the government versus the failures, which, you know, the the successes were 97%, the failures were 3%. And those 3% just wore Leslie Stahl out to even mention them, some of which aren't really failures. For example, Beacon Power. All right, they went through Chapter 11 reorganization because the loan guarantee program wasn't able to renegotiate because Solyndra was, you know, caused everybody to have their pants on fire. So Beacon had a facility that was operational, functioning in New York ISO, continued to operate. All they did was reorganize their management. They've continued to operate. They've built another plant in Pennsylvania. So, you know, what they did was they gave you a snapshot of in this long list of names that may or may not mean anything to anybody. It seemed like there was really a desire to to just bash DOE. Well, you know, Leslie Stahl and many of the viewers of 60 Minutes now are 72 years old. And so I could see how, you know, not taking a breath after saying eight things could actually make her exhausted. <laughs> well, look, so a lot of people have criticized this piece because they don't think it tells the full story. And I absolutely agree with that. But if we break it down to its individual components, I think there was a lot of fairness to the story in looking at this as a troubled sector in venture capital. So we've seen a lot of losses. We've seen venture capitalists who are expecting a three to five year investment time frame realize that their investments were going to take a lot longer to pay off. And that was a major problem. And of course, the VC community has pulled back significantly from clean tech. So there is a legitimate story there. The problem with this is that she conflated the political story with the venture capital story and ignored the generation story, which is a very hot one right now and is very promising. So there are these three elements that I think they tried to push into just the venture capital story. Now, with that said, I think there is some overlap to the political story, and that is a lot of these venture guys did have influence on how people in politics were talking about clean energy early on. And in the 2006 to 2008 timeframe, 
as Bush was transitioning out and getting excited about some of this stuff and Obama, the, the campaign was taking off and both Republicans and Democrats were talking about it and then Obama transitioned in, the VCs had influence on how people were talking about this and they capitalized on job creation, on robust economic growth. And I think it did spin a narrative uh, an unrealistic narrative that we were going to somehow overnight create this clean energy economy and create hundreds of thousands of jobs when a lot of people who were more realistic knew that that was not the case. And so this story is a byproduct of people looking at that story that the VCs and others were spinning and asking, hey, this isn't, why isn't this stacking up with what you claimed? So I actually fault DOE for not telling their story more clearly. I think they did focus, uh, for the most part, on the right things. It didn't all go to startups of new technology. A lot of this stuff, and I worked really hard on the smart grid stimulus part of the funding, went to you know smart meters, which when, whatever you think about smart meters, it did spur an entire industry on that are that's working on home energy applications and technologies that I think is you know O power and all those guys have benefited from. Um, but those were absolutely job oriented. And I think DOE wasn't able to um, communicate that very clearly because you know, I did this big jobs report when I was at Gridwise Alliance. We had chemo work with us on how many jobs would, would be created if you really put a whole bunch of money into modernizing the grid. And it was a bunch of meters, but there were also a lot of other grid modernization technologies that were put out there. And one of the issues that DOE hamstrung themselves with was they were only allowed to count direct jobs jobs rather than the indirect supply chain jobs, the ESCO jobs, all these other jobs that came out of the original slug of jobs that were, you know, the totally direct jobs. So I think they weren't able to tell their story very well and they also didn't uh, weren't able to collect the metrics that could have helped them tell that story. You know, I kind of disagree with them not being able to tell their story. I think DOE has done a pretty decent job over the years in trying to to weave together their story, considering what a big organization they are and how government agencies tr have a hard time telling uh, their side of the story. They're blatantly ignoring the DOE's story. I don't think it was the DOE's fault. Well, I think recently they've been able to tell their story, but they weren't able to at the onset. And part of that is because the money hadn't gotten to where it needed to go. I, I had heard that Jonathan Silver also gave them a long interview, gave 60 minutes a long interview, and it became quite clear to him that no matter what he said, they were going to try to do a hatchet job and it just wasn't going to be very productive. Yeah, Jonathan said as much on Twitter, and then he actually called me um, after the 60 Minutes episode. And it, it, absolutely, he, he didn't actually get um, a fair play for any of the facts that he shared. So what do you think about this venture side of things, Jigger? Do you think that they were fair about the failures experienced in the venture capital community? I mean, suppose rather than attempt to take this VC story and turn it into a broader political story about the and market story about the failure of clean tech, do you think the focus on venture capital and the issues there was fair? Well, it could have been fair. And I think they they just did a poor job of telling the story. I think when you think about, I mean, I've been very critical of the VCs in general in writing, um, and because I think that they thought that technology could save the world, and Vinod Kosla was still pushing technology could save the world on the 60 Minutes episode. Um, whereas Rob Day, who you know has been working closely with us at Green Tech Media, I think has made it clear that business model and financial innovation is a much better play for the clean tech space. And you're seeing the folks who are left in 
cleantech VC like NEA and Rob Day's Black Coral and others are focused on the clean web as well as business model and financial innovation. But they didn't even tell that story well, right? So I just think that they, they cobbled together some facts but didn't actually make any real comprehensive stories out of those facts. My big question for this is where the hell was climate change? You can't talk about this stuff without talking about the environmental imperative. This is the reason why we're rolling this stuff out, the primary reason for the environmental need. And, and ignoring that really skews the reporting on this. Yeah, and that, Stephen, would have given them the news hook. <laughs> I mean, that would have been the hook, and they didn't take that. I mean, one thing, though, Stephen, you know that I've actually been working hard to divorce the two. It's not that I don't believe in climate change, and I do think Greenpeace and Sierra Club and others have a real role to play in the moral outrage piece. But the fact of the matter is oil prices are at over $100 a barrel, or actually more recently only $94 a barrel. Electricity prices have doubled in this country, and I think that we are at a place right now where a lot of these technologies just make sense on a resource efficiency basis. And so I do think that you know one of the reasons we're winning at the state legislature level is because we have done a pretty decent job of taking the politics out of this and actually just saying, look, this is a place where people can make a crap load of money. And we should be focused on the fact that this is just the next generation of technologies which are better than the fossil fuels that they're replacing. Yeah. And those technologies would not have been deployed at the level that they have been, at least on the smart grid side, without that stimulus. That really did uncork this whole slew of technologies that, you know, they had a few bumps on the road getting them out there. But now it's yielding all kinds of interesting innovation. All right. On to topic two. At the end of last year, the Energy Information Administration released its annual energy outlook, which features a series of projections on the energy sector through 2040. The verdict for renewable electricity, a 4% increase in electricity generation over the next two and a half decades. Yes, you heard that correctly. A 4% increase through 2040. EIA is known for having very conservative analysis, as it doesn't factor in any changes to cost, technology performance, a policy, or business models to its projections. So for anyone who knows how EIA conducts its analysis, this doesn't come as a big surprise. But still, these figures are very low, considering how quickly renewable generation is growing. Uh, Jigger, I want to start off with you again on this one. I know you have some pretty strong opinions on EIA's latest outlook and on the International Energy Agency as well, for that matter. Sound off for us. Well, you know, the reason why I'm so passionate about EIA is it's not easily dismissed. I think when you think about EIA, I get the fact that their models are based on historical numbers and all that stuff. But when you're actually fighting for clean energy policy at the state level, this model is exactly what the policymakers refer to when they say you're wrong. When you're suggesting that your costs have come down – EIA has said otherwise, and they're the de facto standard. When you say, well, but, you know, we grew 50% last year, you're like, yeah, but, you know, EIA's model says you're only going to grow a total of 4% through 2040. And so the reason why this is so important to me is because EIA and their inability to fix their models and figure out exactly how to solve this problem, which we've known about for 15 years, is actually wasting many, many cycles of time for the clean tech community who doesn't who don't really have a ton of people um, whose time we can waste yeah so a couple things um one is that you mentioned they're policy neutral so what they've had to do is look at 
In 2016, the solar investment tax credit drops from 30 to 10 percent, and they're assuming it will not be re-upped. They're assuming that the wind production tax credit expired in 2013, which it did. They assume that nothing happens on policy, and that is the way their model is built. So because of that, it looks like they get things wrong because they're not they don't they can't foresee EPACT and the stimulus and all the things that can change the markets. Um, so you do have to consider it as policy neutral. That said, a couple of things that they're I know that they're trying to do is they are trying to collect more data. Um, they say it's there. It takes a really long time to get the manufacturer and marketer installs for solar. But another thing that they are working on that I think is going to be really helpful to renewables is they're proposing um, to collect uh, hourly operating data from the 106 balancing authorities all around the country in the contiguous United States. So they'd collect hourly demand, next day demand forecast, net generation, um, hourly total net actual interchange, and then for every single balancing authority. And what that's going to do is that's going to be able to give us something to, to measure the impact of renewables, smart grid demand response, all of those other technologies, energy efficiency, um, based on what this real-time, you know, basically real-time hourly demand information is. And I think part of what the issue has been is that they have not been able to collect that data uh, to date. And they're going to start doing that. They just issued this in the Federal Register. And I think that is really going to help the case of renewables, efficiency, all, all the other technologies in, clean, in the clean energy space. So do you think it makes sense for them to be policy neutral, or should they issue different analyses based on different um, policy scenarios and technology scenarios? Or do they just not have the resources for that? Well, I think they'd have to be pretty clear about how they were doing it. So they can't do, right now, they can't do an analysis based on wishful thinking of what we all are working on. I mean, they have to kind of do it just pretty cut and dried of what exists and what doesn't exist and what will cease to exist. And so that's why, you know, it can look pretty bad when it looks like all the tax credits are going away. Yeah. Maybe maybe they could do a series of different uh, analyses, but that's, that's not what they've done to date. I do think that this new collection of hourly data is going to change is going to provide additional tools for um for for looking at per, for looking at state local programs mm. yeah but what's shocking here is that eia this year in 2013 sorry um made radical changes to its models to take into account fracking and natural gas and now most of the natural gas industry is saying eia is way too bullish on natural gas and actually got the models all wrong. So they clearly have the ability to react to political pressure when asked by the fracking industry to do so. But the renewable energy guys, oh, you're very difficult to work with. And so we're not going to help you one iota on actually getting our data correct for policy models in the future. I'll give some folks some context on some of their previous analysis. In a 2008 outlook, uh, their forecast was for distributed solar PV capacity uh, user end user generated PV capacity to be about 2.8 gigawatts in 2030, and utility PV to be at about 0.4 gigawatts in 2030. Um, and of course, we installed 930 megawatts in the third quarter of this year, and we've surged past 10 gigawatts of capacity this year cumulatively. Um, so way ahead of that. Uh, two decades or, or a decade and a half earlier. In 2006, they estimated that wind would make up about a 1 in a 1.1% of electricity production in 2030, and it hit 3% in 2011 and about 4% in 2013. Uh, there are a few more I could go on and on, but it's 
you know, it's really interesting how varied this is. Uh, each year, the market is substantially ahead of what their projections are. But you, what that last example didn't take into account was, you know, what did EPACT 07 and the stimulus bill do for wind? I mean, that was a sig- significant to increase the wind installation. So I think, um, you know, because they don't they don't take the policies into consideration and don't try to, you know, assume that there will be policies in place that can really, really change what they look at. So thank, thankfully, they do it every year yeah. <laughs> so we can so see Catherine, what the differences are. Yeah, but let's go let's go to the extreme. So now let's you and I assume that the PTC that sort of expired here in 2013 mm-hmm. um, will actually die yeah. and the ITC will go down from 30 percent to 10 percent in 2016. Do you think that any forecaster on the planet other than EIA under those situations actually believe that we'll be limited to a four percent growth rate by t- t- until 2040? Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to assume that the states are going to continue policies or that business models are going to change. But I don't think that they have the tools to be able to do that, given what they collect right now. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. And they should be embarrassed. The fact that they are deliberately making our jobs more difficult because of their incompetence is something that they should be held into account for. This notion that they can hide behind the fact that they actually don't have the tools or whatever else, I am 100% sure that we could get DOE's you know, leadership as well as the White House and Congress to say, if you need better tools to do your job better, we'd be happy to give you those tools. But the incompetence that you're showing every single year has got to stop. Yeah, but isn't it up for uh, other private institutions to make a more aggressive scenarios? You know, Greenpeace puts out their projections, GTM Research puts out uh, our projections. You know, we have plenty of very good projections out there. And maybe it's not EIA's job. To, to none of which, but none of which are accepted by the public service commissions that I work with. Every single public service commission says I will only use the cost data and the future data from EIA. But doesn't that help you make your case better to say, look, without policy, this is how this is how small the growth is going to be. Yes, but when you actually mandate a certain amount of renewable portfolio standard stuff in there and EIA puts out really bad cost data and cost predictions, then they're saying that this policy of renewable portfolio standards is going to cost $10 billion to the ratepayers of Texas, when in fact, it's going to cost less than $500 million to the ratepayers of Texas. So walk me through this one more time. How, what would they factor in that would still make them policy neutral, that would allow them to come more in line with market trends? So right now, they use data from five years ago. Their models cannot be updated for data that's less than like five years old. So that's why they're so far behind. But you've got Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and others that are doing policy neutral analyses on what the costs of solar and wind will be, as well as what the projections of growth will be in these markets based on models that they themselves have. So all I'm asking EIA, EIA to do is actually talk to their brethren in the we can't actually predict policy world that they already live in, that the existing U.S. government already funds, but they refuse to talk to. All right. Well, let's turn to a technology of the future. Uh, This week, Ford will be showcasing a new plug-in hybrid concept car, the Consumer Electronics Show, featuring solar cells from SunPower embedded on the roof. But that's only half of the concept. Uh, The other half is a canopy structure 
with acrylic concentrators built in that will focus the sunlight onto the cells. So theoretically, under Ford's model, a, a car owner would park the car under a public canopy, activate autonomous driving, and the car would move slowly throughout the day under the structure to track the sun. And Ford says it could cut grid-based charging by 75%. So let's remember, this is a concept car. Most concept cars never make it. Uh, Ford says it's designed to start a conversation around what's possible with EVs, solar, and autonomous driving. And, of course, it's got us talking. Uh, Catherine, I want to turn to you on this one. Um, what do you think a concept like this proves? I mean, are you interested in this? Do you think it's too early to say? Uh, what do you make of Ford's car? I think this is great. I love that it's one of the big three that's doing this. Um, I worked in the late 1990s on a program called the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles. It was like another one of the DOE programs. The big three were secretly each devising hybrid drivetrains. And in the end, Toyota took it and ran with it. And the other guys were kind of left behind. And I love the fact that now they're kind of owning the technology and saying, all right, we're going to do this. And Ford, who started with the electric vehicle to begin, you know, at the beginning of time anyway, I mean, I think this is very cool that they're doing this. I talked to EDTA, the Electric Drive Transportation Association. They were saying this just points to the diversity of options that are developing. They love the fact that there are all these different cars that are that are being considered that that provide different needs and different people's preferences, that there are all these different charging um, options, locational options, wireless charging, off-grid, solar, all of these things are are great that are that are being um, you know pushed by the big three. I, I think it's great. Jigger, what about you? You know, I was initially skeptical around whether this was practical. And I wasn't I was confused about how many kilowatts were actually on the car because there was a press release that said two point five kilowatts, but when I counted the cells, I think there's only eight hundred and seventy five watts on the car, which is actually pretty good. And then I did the math and it looks like if the car was parked in full sun and actually got, you know, sort of the same amount of energy that California generally produces every year for for one kilowatt of solar. You could actually drive the car roughly 5,000 miles a year just on the solar power from the roof of the car. It's pretty damn good. So I'm really impressed, actually. And I should point out that a number of commenters on the story that I wrote were very skeptical of the piece. And I actually realized that I probably should have provided a lot more skepticism to this because a lot of companies have had troubles building out electric car charging infrastructure. You know, where the heck are these canopies going to go? Is Ford going to build them themselves? How are they going to finance them? Are consumers actually going to use them? Um, there's a lot of infrastructure already in place for electric vehicles as well, so particularly at existing homes. So you can get a charger installed at your house for much easier. Does it make sense for them to actually build these chargers? So I think there's a lot of skepticism warranted here. And of course, it is a concept car. We should be very clear about that. They're just trying to prove that this can be done. They're not necessarily going to roll it out in a big way right away, if at all. Um, but uh, I'm glad that you, you think it's kind of cool. So you, you actually think that there's promise here. Well, just doing the math is is interesting, right? But So I agree with you completely that I think that most electric vehicles for the rest of the decade should be sold to people who actually have a garage who can plug it in. I find this whole thing about people who live in apartment buildings and all this other stuff to be a little bit of a distraction. But let's assume you have a garage and now you're driving to work. The average day 
um, this car can recharge something on the order of like 10 to 11 kilowatt hours, or sorry, uh, three to four kilowatt hours, which is roughly 10 to 11 miles of driving. That's pretty good. So you go to your work. They refuse to give you a plug to plug in the car. You leave it out in the full sun. It actually generates enough power to, to add an additional 10 to 12 to 13 miles worth of um, distance, uh, which is fantastic because that probably gets you back home um, so that your car is fairly fully charged before you go back home. I think what excites me most about this is – what Mike Tinsky, who I interviewed for this story at Ford, said was the convergence of technologies that are making this possible. Now that autonomous driving is starting to become more of a reality, solar is becoming cheap enough so that they can actually integrate it on a vehicle itself. And, uh, you know, plug-in hybrids are getting to the point now where Ford and other companies are a bit more ambitious about how they want to market to consumers. The technologies are coming down in cost enough and coming together so that a concept like this could potentially be a reality. And these companies are getting more serious about trying to make them happen. So again, although that skepticism is warranted around this being a concept car, it's very telling that a company like Ford as Catherine mentioned earlier, uh, sees the potential in the convergence of these technologies. Yeah, it's not two guys in a garage. I mean, this is a, this is a big company that can put some money into it. I also think, interestingly, the electric utility sector and EEI, especially um, their you know the trade association, thinks that EVs are going to be the way for them to be able to recoup some of the losses that they're getting from, you know, demands being lowered and uh, through, you know, conservation and demand response. And, uh, and they see EVs as the big kahuna. And, and now it's like, oh, no, we're going to put solar on them. <laughs> I think it, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll be interested to see how the utilities um, kind of adjust their thinking about EVs. But so far, they've been very positive about them. Yeah, I think that comes out actually in your in your interview with Mike Tinsky, Stephen, in, the, in that um, I think he still has a bit of a roadblock around the fact that because they're Ford, he actually thinks they have to work with the electric utility sector in a straightforward manner where the electric utility actually gives him permission before he moves forward on a lot of the complexity and in in-grid-based EV charging. But, you know, in fact, I think what the solar industry has proven or Uber, for, for that matter, and car sharing has proven, is better just to do things and ask for permission later. Um, and I think the utilities are actually just flummoxed at how to integrate all these these ideas. You can imagine with all of the disaster that's going on in Hawaii right now with thousands of customers with unconnected solar systems, that maybe all of them should get a plug-in you know, EV to figure out a way to make that, um, that situation easier for the utility. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger Shah, what do you have? Well, I think we might talk about this in a future podcast, but as everyone knows, I think at this point, Solar World has decided to come out with another set of um, um, legal challenges to the Chinese module manufacturers. And it really is a big deal because as soon as this case really officially gets filed, um, the people who are importing Chinese solar modules actually start to get um, into potential trouble uh, where they have some liability around whether they're actually paying for these tariffs if assessed later. Um, and so it's going to cause havoc again in the industry. And so I'm still trying to figure out where all the puzzle pieces fit in, but I think that um, this is going to be a story we're going to be talking about in 2014. 
Yep, we'll be talking about that next week for sure. Catherine Hamilton, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, well, I know some of you know that it's been really, really cold um, in the Midwest, and, and it's headed our way now. We're going to feel it tomorrow on the East Coast, these sub-zero temps and you know just unbelievable wind chill factors. Well, ERCOT in Texas uh, was going to have to have rolling blackouts um, because of these frigid temperatures and, and that they're not used to having winter peaks. Um, but uh, conservation and just getting people to conserve and demand response saved them and kept them from having to have these rolling power outages on Monday. So I thought that was significant, um, you know, from both from the, the climate perspective and also from the fact that we we actually have ways to respond uh, to these situations now. It works. Yes. <laughs> so mine is related to the point that Catherine made during our little Ford EV segment about utilities uh, and flattening demand, and, and it also relates to the EIA. So it's pretty clear that EIA isn't great at predicting the future, but they do have a ton of great data on the past. And they recently released this interesting statistic. Uh, So we all know that power demand is down or flatlining in the U.S., but I actually didn't realize how far it had dropped. Um, U.S. power sales, according to EIA, have declined four out of the last five years, even as the number of homes grew and commercial building space grew. And this creates a really concerning situation for utilities, which are dealing with this double hit of declining or flattening sales with increasing penetrations of distributed power that could potentially weaken customer relationships. And then you look at what companies are experimenting with, like Ford with off-grid solar charging. Utilities are expecting demand to be boosted by technologies like electric vehicles. And if you start eroding that as well, then you create all sorts of new challenges for utilities. So uh, I thought it was really remarkable that U.S. power sales have declined four out of the last five years. It, it, well, I mean, the utilities are getting it from both sides. It's extraordinary to me how um, how fast this is happening to the electric utility industry and underscores why EIA data matters, right? Because if if EIA, the best they can do is actually get it partially right in the year of choice, then they're not actually doing their job of helping politicians as well as public service commissioners, you know, deal with the future of, of the of what you're implying. All right. Well, that is all for this week's show. For links to the stories we discussed in the program, click on over to greentechmedia.com and check out the show notes on our podcast page. While there, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. We also have an RSS feed with our episodes for you to integrate into the player of your choosing. And if you listen to those formats, go write a review or give us a rating. We depend on those to increase our listenership, so it'd be greatly appreciated. For any story ideas or comments, you can send them my way, and I will pass them around to the rest of the gang. My email is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We are looking forward to another great year as we continue to grow the listenership, uh, bring on a range of expert guests, and, and keep our eyes on all the big happenings in the industry. So we appreciate you tuning in in 2014, and I'm happy to be doing it alongside my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton. A pleasure this week. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Stay warm, you guys. And Jigger, I know you're going to go out and get one of those Snuggies. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Thanks as always, Jigger. No, this this was a great episode. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 